Amen. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Hello. So, Kim and I, uh, my wife Kim is somewhere here. Oh, there she is over there. Hello. Um, we've lived in Ballard about six years now. Uh, we came here after living in Colorado for a bit. But all up, we've been in Seattle about 25, 26 years, something like that. Uh, spent most of it on the east side where we raised our kids. Our son actually graduated from high school uh, over there. Um, but between the east side and coming to Ballard, we spent this three-year period in, in Colorado. Uh, and I think most of you know, who know me, uh, I've spent all my years working in tech. And so when I was in Colorado, a uh, team out there, a company out there, had hired me to take over their, their engineering team. They had a, um, a product that was supposed to encourage employees to get more active and stay healthy and fit so insurance costs would go down, those kinds of things. Uh, problem is, the product they had was crashing all the time. I mean, it was, it was really a mess. Uh, they had a small, small team, and the engineers were of dubious quality. Uh, so they, they brought me in because they were signing these contracts. Something had to happen. They had to make this thing work. And so, okay, I'll take it over. So I ended up rebuilding the engineering team. I uh, added a number of engineers, uh, several of which I was uh, quite pleased with. We, we took their product. And for those of you who don't know technology, don't worry about this. But you can think of it as I moved it from, you know, kind of one sandbox and set of toys and tools to another sandbox with a different set of toys and tools. And this one worked a lot better. And so it was a nice success because we got to the point where they, um, instead of crashing every week, we were actually able to deliver kind of a new feature almost every single week. And so sales was happy, everybody was happy, it was great. Um, and it was good. I, I felt good about what I had done with the team. Uh, but Kim and I, coming from Seattle, Kim was born here, it's kind of home, the Northwest, Colorado was fun. But we felt it was time to come back. And so I had to announce to the team that I was going to leave and say, well, you know, I've taken this job with Amazon. I'm going to move back here to Seattle. And it was interesting. Uh, the team got just really, really, really upset. Um, I had one engineer, one of the engineers I had hired. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget, he was sitting down right in front of me, and he had a laptop. And he came really, really close to taking that laptop and just throwing it on the floor. Um, a young woman... Uh, that I would kind of help mentor as an engineer. Actually, she, she broke out in tears, got up, and, and left the room. Um, I mean, so I felt bad about leaving. I felt nice that they liked me and were sad to see me go, but I felt bad about leaving. And so, you know, I kind of left Colorado on kind of a high note. I thought, this was great. It took a team that wasn't functioning that well, got them turned around, got their product turned around, the the engineers didn't hate me. It was, an, it was a nice thing to do. So and I was hired into Amazon to take over basically another team. Not exactly the same. Amazon's got a pretty high bar for the types of engineers they hire. So generally speaking, the caliber of engineer I was dealing with was better. But this particular team was part of a, a two-team uh, organization. And their productivity rate was, was way, way, way behind uh, the other team. Just they were... I think you can think of it like in months, they were probably trailing at least eight months or so in terms of delivery for what they were supposed to be getting out. And so my job was, again, go in, build a team, strengthen, and get their productivity up. And I thought, this is great. I, I can probably do this. And so about six months in, I had a one-on-one -on -one with my manager. Um, and then he was, he was pleased. He was pleased. The, uh, the team's productivity had not quite caught up with the other team, but we were getting close. We were getting close. 
uh, things seem to be hiring or working well. I had hired a couple of good engineers that we like. And so I felt good. I, I thought, okay, this is maybe this is something I can do. Maybe I can actually, you know, manage teams and help turn these things around. And then about three months later, I had another meeting with my manager. I had my first formal all-up annual review. That meeting did not go well. Um, it was a bad meeting. It was a bad review. For those of you that um, are in technology, you may have heard of this. Uh, I was put on what they call a performance improvement plan, which is a PIP for short. And if you're familiar with this, those kinds of plans are often, not always, but often kind of a death sentence. It's a way for the company to usher you out the door because they don't like what you're doing. And so we're going to set some criteria up that you probably can't meet and you're done. I, uh, I felt pretty blindsided. I didn't understand how I had gone from things were great at six months to you're an abject failure at you know, nine months, three months later. Um, I was angry. I was real angry. <laughs> you can imagine. <laughs> My office had a door, fortunately. Um, I was worried. Uh, we had a daughter here at the time attending SPU. I had another daughter that was in a, uh, some private schooling we needed to fund. My son was, I think, in his final year of college at the time. So I was pretty much bleeding money. Uh, that's what you do. Um, and my job was on the line. So fortunately, I have a, a wife that's calm and kind and patient and lets me yell and rant and rave. And uh, she called me down. I went back. I met with HR. We talked about why they decided to come to the conclusion they did. Um, we addressed the issues. Uh, my team... Eventually, actually, their productivity surpassed the team that was their peer. By the time I left that team, uh, they were actually leading the way. Um, I actually ended up leaving that team because another manager recruited me to take over her team, which was struggling. And eventually, when I left Amazon after about three years or so, um, took that team out. And those engineers, they weren't throwing their laptops around, and I had nobody breaking in tears. But, but they were upset. They were very, very unhappy to see me go. Right? And, and here's kind of the point. So I, that was a bad spot. Just, there's just no way to put icing on that one. That was a bad, it was a bad spot. And I, I was kind of faced with a bit of a choice. I could have let that bad review kind of define who I was, what I could do, where I could go, what I was going to be. Or we could let it become maybe an opportunity to learn something, to change, to grow, to move forward in some interesting way. That was what I was faced with. And I think it all kind of revolves around how we let God respond to those moments in our lives. Okay? And this is where I want to step in and pick up with Peter. Okay? So last week, if you were here, Brad introduced us to Peter. Uh, he was, if you recall, Jesus spent a uh, night at his house. His mother-in-law was sick. Peter actually cared about his mother-in-law's health and uh, wanted her to be well. Jesus prayed. She got well. She got up, served him. Um, Peter's actually an important person to Luke. 
So Luke actually wrote two, two books in the New Testament, if, if you don't know this. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote Acts. Okay? And it's really likely that these two books were meant to be a single unit, to read almost together. Okay? But they're limited. They have scrolls that only can go so long. And so Luke kind of divided it and said, okay, we'll put the beginning part in this one and the, the church part in this one. But if you read them and look at them together, you'll see that Peter plays just a really significant role in, in, in Luke's writing. Luke puts a lot of attention on him for the, for the point that Luke wants to get across. And it, it all kind of begins right here by this lake. Okay. Um, so we're at this lake. Luke calls it Lake Gennesaret. You've probably heard of it as the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's a busy place. Jesus came here because this is where the people were at. So it's a busy place. It's a morning. Crowds are humming. Jesus comes to teach there because he wants to go where the people are at, not necessarily wait for them to come to him. And so here's the thing. Jesus is also very charismatic. As our pastor says, you know, he drew crowds. And if you read the Gospels, time and again, Jesus draws crowds. And not just one, two, three, or four, but actually by the thousands. He draws very large crowds. And he, and it just seems that Jesus kind of had that effect on people. Either you listened to him and you hung on every word he spoke, almost becoming something of a groupie in a way, or you despised him because he just kind of rocked your world in a way that you didn't expect and you didn't want. In this way, Jesus didn't leave any kind of room for a, kind of a squishy middle. But if you're a popular teacher, as Jesus was, and you're teaching on the shore of a lake, you've created a problem for yourself in a way. Crowds are going to gather up around you. You can only back up so far, right? I can't get past the stage. Pretty soon my ankles are getting wet. We've got a challenge here. So I don't think Jesus was... I think he knew how to draw people. I also think he knew what he was doing. I don't think he was some wandering, starry-eyed mystic who just kind of floated about and offered aphorisms. I think he was very, very intentional about what he did. And he saw here this, this particular part of the lake uh, is not just a sandy beach kind of a thing that you might expect to go lay in the sun. It actually, the coast zigzags a bit. And the coast then kind of works up a bit in these little kind of steep, steep inlets. If you were actually could back out and stand on the water and, and face these inlets, you can actually, and you can do this today, you can actually go there today and do this. So this is not like some made-up story. You could actually stand out, look at those, speak in a little more than a normal voice, and all those people could hear you. So it's kind of like a natural amphitheater. So Jesus knew where he was at. He knew what he was doing. He's got these crowds pushing him in the water, and so he improvises. There's a boat. I'm going to borrow that. So he borrows a boat, borrows Peter with the boat, and they push off a bit, and Jesus continues to teach. It's when he gets done teaching that things get really interesting for Peter. So now we've got to talk about Peter for just a minute. So Peter was a fisherman. And for those of you that fish, when's the best time to fish? Probably not noon, right? You go out early in the morning when it's calm, or you go out late in the evening when it's calm. Well, these guys are professionals, and the way that they fished is they had different kinds of nets. So we think the particular net that Peter was using for this is a kind where you heave it over the side of the boat, it sits in the water and makes kind of a, a vertical wall out of a couple of three nets, 
and they splash a bunch so the, the fish get scared into the net, they get tangled up, they can't come out, you pull it, dump it, repeat. Um, so Peter fished overnight with his partners. That was, that was the good time to catch the fish. And it's probably right now about 8 or 9 a.m. in the morning. So it's early, and what's Peter doing? He's standing on the side of the shore, washing his nets. Now, you don't wash your nets until you're done. Washing nets is hard work, and I'm not going to wash them unless I've given up, I'm not going to fish anymore. They hadn't caught anything that night. They were done, it was over. Um, The fish, in a sense, and here's a cheesy way of putting it, gave him a bad review, right? Uh, He had put his time in, he'd worked hard, he'd tried, he had done what he knows was best, but came up empty-fished or empty-handed. So now he's sitting in the boat with Jesus. And again, I don't think Jesus is one of these people who gave like a quick 15 or 20-minute sermonette, waved the crowds off, and, and wandered away. Again, you look at, you read the Gospels, you look at where he taught, what he said, I think he probably went on for a while. Probably taught for quite a while. In fact, we've got a couple occasions in the Gospels where uh, people followed him for so long, and he taught for so long, the disciples were actually afraid they were going to faint on the way back home. So I don't think Jesus was short-winded. I think he was probably quite long-winded. So you're sitting in the boat. Jesus is teaching. He's going on and on. Peter is sitting in the boat. Peter's tired. He is done. He's spent. It was a bad night. He's done. Eventually, Jesus finishes. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, Hey, why don't you push out into the deep water again? Let's drop the nets over the side and see what happens. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was asking of Peter. I, uh, I don't think that he was... I, I think he knew exactly that Peter had had uh, a bad night. I think he knew exactly what he was asking Peter to do. And, and sometimes you, you wonder, you wish that the Bible had a, like a voiceover track, like a, like a narration. And I don't mean one of these, you know, meditative narration things that kind of, you know, read word for word in almost a monotone and kind of put you to sleep because it all sounds the same. But maybe something that actually could let you hear how the people felt and how they responded when they were asked a question. And I don't know if Peter just responded because he was tired or if maybe there was just a touch of snarkiness in his voice. Or, or how he actually responded to Jesus. He was at least superficially respectful, right? Master, because you've said so. But what really matters and what made the difference for Peter that day, and as we look at the rest of the gospel accounts for the rest of his life, is that Peter actually obeyed. And he obeyed because it was Jesus who asked him to obey. So the very thing that kind of had set him back set him up for what was going to be the rest of his life. All right? So how does Jesus answer Peter's obedience? They catch a lot of fish. And they don't just catch a lot of fish. They catch actually a crazy amount of fish. Now think about the description, right? So they toss this net in. They're trying to haul it in. And the net is breaking. Somehow they get the net and the fish into the boat. They call their partners over. They fill both boats. And what do the boats do? The boats sink. Okay? This is not just a lot of fish. This is more fish than they ever expected to catch. 
These guys, in a sense, were gobsmacked, stunned, and shocked. This was something way, way, way outside their expectations. Um, fishing boats don't sink under just a heavy load. A fishing boat is going to sink only under an overwhelmingly heavy load. All right? And now you've got to stop again and look at this, because how does Peter respond? I mean, they're shocked, they're amazed, their boats are sinking, they're trying to get back to shore. Peter looks at Jesus, and what does he say? He says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Now, let's set aside our, our Bible ease for a minute. I mean, we read Scripture, and because we read Scripture, we expect to hear certain things all the time. Because we expect to hear certain things all the time, I think sometimes we lose the impact of what's being said. But I mean, honestly, if I was out fishing like that and pulled in a net and caught all that load of fish, it's doubtful that my first response, I mean, I would have been shocked. I would have been wondering what's going on. But I doubt that my first response would have been, get back, I'm sinful. And so we have to kind of dig in and ask, well, what's bouncing around inside Peter's head to make him think that that's the right thing to say. And to understand that, we've got to step back into Israel's story to understand why Peter said this. Because in Peter's eyes, this huge catch of fish was actually a direct fulfillment, a direct fulfillment of what God had promised to Israel. You see, Israel had a contract with God. We call it a covenant, but it's basically a contract with God. God had called the nation of Israel for a purpose. He wanted to bless them. He wanted them to follow him so that they would just be this shining light of what people were supposed to be like, how people could possibly live, and how rich the world could be. And God had promised them that if they lived that way, such that the nations would be drawn to them, that he would just pour and pour and pour out on them just crazy abundance. And in fact, Craig, do we have that Deuteronomy passage? Can we bring that up? Yeah. So this is from Deuteronomy. So it's the first five books of the Bible. Uh, books of Moses, Torah is what it's called. And this is kind of back at the very beginning where you know, they've penned up the contract and they're just putting their signatures on it. And here's what, uh, this is actually Moses speaking for God, but this is what they're saying. He says, if you fully obey the Lord your God, and carefully follow all his commands I give you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flock, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in. You will be blessed when you go out. You see, what God was trying to do with Israel was create a nation that was going to begin to restore what God had actually intended for all of creation. God did not intend to create a world that was driven by scarcity and competition. He really didn't. In fact, it's actually partly why, if you go back to the very beginning of Genesis... It's partly why our Bible starts with a story in a garden. All right? It's actually partly why it starts with a story in a garden. God intended to give Israel a land that was going to be a rich garden for them. In fact, he calls it to them, I'm going to lead you into a land, he says, flowing with milk and honey. 
Okay? It was supposed to be a rich, good, abundant place. This is where we come in as people. Because God actually made all of us, in his image, to be caretakers for this world, to draw out all that it has to give, to draw out its abundance, so that this place actually flourishes. In a very real sense, we were made to be gardeners of a type, such that this world just thrives under our touch. The challenge comes, though, when we treat this place where we live like it's our own little private sandbox, and we write our own rules for how to live here, our own rules to play the game, we pay a price for it, the world pays a price for it. Um, there's a Christian essayist that I, I like uh, named Wendell Berry. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Um, he's got a great little quote on this. He says, rats and roaches. Okay, so rats and roaches live by competition under the laws of supply and demand. It's the privilege of human beings to live under the laws of justice and mercy. So at some level, our lack, somewhat individually, certainly corporately, comes because we have chosen to live other than God has wanted us to live. In a sense, we suffer lack because we're sinners. Okay? Um, and our sin hasn't only hurt us, but it's also put all of creation in pain. And there's a great New Testament passage on this. Craig, you want to bring up that Romans thing? Thank you. This is Paul. Uh, he's writing to a church in Rome. And he says this. He says, creation, so the entire world around us, all right, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated, freed, okay, from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. So this story is what's bouncing around Peter's head. This is the story he was raised in. This is a story that he's immersed in. We're back on a boat. There's this huge catch of fish. The boats are sinking. And Peter responds, I'm a sinful man. Okay. Now, I, I don't think Peter had any real idea just yet who Jesus was. You keep reading in the Gospels, and it, it is the case that, that Peter is the first one to actually realize that Jesus is God's Messiah. Um, but it makes sense, just in general, that this kind of a raw abundance with that story bouncing around his head is going to convict him. Um, I think actually God's goodness can convict all of us. I mean, have you ever felt guilty about just enjoying good things? I mean, am I the only one? Um, I mean, come on, look. Not, not always, but sometimes you can enjoy something so good, so nice, so sweet, that it just kind of shines a light on everything you're not and all the ways that you don't actually live up to who you should be, right? Um, or maybe you get some kind of really nice blessing, somebody's nice to you, something works out well, and 
five counts later, you're cutting somebody off on the road, you're cussing somebody out. Well, we don't do that, but um, you hear my point, okay? Um, goodness, God's goodness can actually convict us occasionally because we realize that we're getting gifts that we don't deserve. And that tells us something more about God than ourselves, okay? So we need to bring this back. Let's, let's bring these two guys together now. So Jesus is given the abundance. Peter is convicted. Do you think Jesus knew who Peter was? Okay. Read the Gospels again. Pay attention to how Jesus interacted with people. I think you're going to find Jesus was a pretty good, pretty reliable judge of character. I don't think that he was caught off guard by who Peter was. He doesn't get Peter's response and go, what, huh, who, huh? Can I talk to your brother, please? Okay. He wasn't shocked by what Peter said. Um, Peter, Jesus knew who Peter was, and he knows who we are. Um, Jesus is taking, actually, I think, strategic advantage of the hard, fishless night that Peter had to lead Peter forward into what God intended for him. And it's the same thing with us. Uh, when God lures us into faith, he knows what he's getting. We don't surprise God. Our stumbles, our guffaws, the things that we do, they're stupid. God doesn't get surprised. It's not like after following Jesus, God looks at us and goes, whoa, wait a minute, I thought you were better than that. Okay, We're, we don't surprise God. God knows us. He knows me. He knows you. Each of us very thoroughly. And he knows who exactly he's asking to sign on. And here's the thing. It's not just Peter. And it's not just us. Every person that graces the pages of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, First Testament, Second, every single one, in some way, stumbles. You know, Peter, he's had a bad night fishing. If you read the rest of Luke and you read Acts, you know he's going to have some other fun coming down the line. He's going to deny, he's going to deny Jesus at the trial. That's a bit of a rough move, okay? Uh, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. There's a great thing in the book of Acts. Paul gets in this really, really, really nasty argument with his partner over um, a junior member. They were debating whether they should bring with him on a trip. Paul was against it. The other guy was for it. And it was, this argument was so, so heated. They split company. These guys had been working together for several years. They split company, went different ways. This is, by the way, from the guy that wrote 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the chapter on love, okay? Yeah. Um, and if you read Paul's letters, I think Paul regretted that argument because in the latter part of his life, that, that junior member that they were debating about shows up at Paul's side, okay? There's others. There's a book in the New Testament called uh, Hebrews. It comes near the end of your Bible. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, it was likely written to Jewish Christians who in some way were struggling with whether they should stick with the faith. They were waffling. Should we slide back into this comfortable cultural life that we knew or should we stick with this new thing? Is this Jesus thing really what God is doing? Where are we going to be? So this guy wrote this very, very long letter to show them and explain to them, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that made you comfortable back here. And it's this long letter, and he builds up, and he builds up, and he builds up. And finally, in chapter 11, 
he's got this list of these of these heroes, these these faithful believers of the of the Bible, which for them would be just the Old Testament. And he lists them kind of like the way you might go and find sports heroes or heroes at work or something else as inspirational. He lists these guys name after name after name after name. So here's your homework assignment I want you to do. So you get some time. Go read Hebrews 11. I want you to take a look at the name of every single person that's in there. And then I want you to go and dig up their backstory out of the Old Testament. And I want you to read it. And what you're going to find is every single person of those failed in some way. None of them was a completely all-up rose-colored picture of faithfulness. Most of them failed more than once. Okay, Every single one failed in some interesting way. Here's the point. I'd been given a bad review at Amazon. I, I could have let that define me. I could have let set my, set my expectations. I could have said, well, I guess... This is who I am. I'm, I'm not going to be able to move past this. Um, we all have those kinds of challenges in our lives, our professional lives, our personal lives, our lives as believers. All right? And I don't know uh, if there's something you're struggling with. I don't know if you've had a, a bad week. Maybe you had a bad review at the office. I don't know. Okay? Maybe there's something you're struggling with. I think what God's beginning to tell us is that we can either let that thing define us or we can let it become something by which he is going to move us forward. And to do that, we have to take a listen to how Jesus responded to Peter. So one of the things we have to recognize is our God is a good God. We sang about that this morning. Um, He is literally the God of all beauty, all pleasure, James says in the New Testament, he is the God from whom every good, every single good and perfect gift flows. So you know, maybe the next time you have a nice meal, you drink wine, have a nice glass of wine, maybe you're just out enjoying the weather, maybe you're just hanging out with friends and having a good time. As you enjoy those, that good thing, let it sink in and remind you that this is goodness, is a bit of a reflection of who God is, all right? So this is Jesus, our good God. They're in a boat. They're struggling to make it back to shore. They're sinking. They're taking on water. God has just given them way more fish than they know what to do with. They're gobsmacked and scared. So how does Jesus respond to Peter? He says something very simple. He says, don't be afraid. And then he points them in a new direction. So these hardworking guys have just encountered a power they really can't get their heads around. In a sense, it's kind of dragged out of the daylight everything that they are and everything that they're not. The blessing they received, all these fish, was way out of character for the men they were. In the darkness and the night before, they'd caught nothing. Jesus was calling them out into the daytime to show them all that he can do for them and all that he wants to do through them. It was a sheer act of grace. It was an act of totally frightening grace in a way. But it's also the same grace that should calm us. Because God does not call us, he didn't call Peter, to put us back on some kind of treadmill. We don't have to crush it, right, 
to stay on God's good side. We're back to that quote in James about every good and perfect gift. God has only one side, and it's a good side. There's no bad side of God to end up on. God wants us to enjoy the world that he's made. But he didn't make it just so we can live fat and happy. And now we've got to step back into Israel's story for just a minute. This is where Israel had a bit of a struggle. Okay? So God had promised them, look, you, you live this way, I'm going to bless you, you're going to be a light to the nations, this is going to be great. The mistake that Israel made, and read the prophets, read the prophets in the Old Testament, and you'll see this again and again and again. Israel sadly understood God's blessing to be for their own personal private benefit. It was like just a gift for them. It's not what God intended. We are actually made in God's image. And we're supposed to act in a very real sense like God's in this world. But to do so in submission to the one who made us so that we actually are reflecting him in this world so that the place that we live flourishes. And that starts like it did with Peter in surrendering. First in obedience and then in following. So what do we think this looks like? Kind of you know, boots on the ground kind of way. Well, actually, I think it's what the rest of the Bible spells out. I think the rest of the Bible spells out. Practically, some things that I think matter uh, to me a lot is we need to be caring for our neighbors. We should be people known to care and love for those around us. Um, I mean, people live right next door to you, by the way. I don't just mean random people. I mean, people who live next door, okay? We need to care about these people. Even if we don't like them. Even if we don't agree with them. Even if it kind of costs us something, we need to be those people because that's who our God is. We're back to this big catch of fish, right? We need to be that for these people. We need to care for the poor. There are people that get ground down by how this world works. This place is not fair. Sometimes we experience some of that unfairness. Some people experience way more than their fair share of unfairness. And we need to care about that. We need to see if we can help make a difference for them. We need to try to live at peace with everyone. We're not supposed to be divisive. I know Paul got into a nasty argument. But he did write the chapter on love, too. We're supposed to be a non-divisive people. We're supposed to get along. We, as a group, in a community, as much as we can, as best as we can, we're supposed to live as one across every single line you can imagine that would divide us. Rich, poor, political lines, Republican, Democrat, male, female, and across every single line of color you can possibly imagine. That's who we're supposed to be. Okay? I guess you could sum it all up like this. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul and our strength, and then love our neighbors as ourselves. Okay? For Peter, that journey began when he lowered the net into the water and then walked away, as Luke says, from the largest catch of fish he ever saw. It ended with him 
if the tales that we have are correct, this is not in the Bible, but we think this is probably true. It ended with Peter crucified upside down in Rome. There are some of us, some believers, that may have to make choices like that, those kinds of hard choices. I suspect that most of us are going to have to work out the details of this where we live on a day-to-day basis. This is where, as Brad mentioned, your gathering can help. When you get together with other believers, you have a chance to share, discuss, talk, a word I like to use. You have a chance to shape one another, step by step, into the image of Jesus. And the purpose of that shaping is so that we can all step into God's rescue work of creation. Okay, Living here and now as citizens of his kingdom while we wait for Jesus to return and finalize the thing that he started. Okay, Let's pray. Lord, just thank you for your good gifts. Thank you that you are a good God. Uh, thank you that you've made a, a good world. Thank you that you've given us a privilege of playing a role in drawing out the goodness of this place. Um, help us to live into that if it's by gardening, if it's by loving our neighbor, if it's by laughing. Lord, just help us to be a people that just makes this place a delightful place to live and be. And thank you, that Lord, that we can trust and know for your love that you'll always care for us, and that nothing can separate us from you. In your name, amen.